hope you feel like I do. I feel like I've been to worship. It's amazing how a song is timeless. It's amazing how God loves the celebration of his name amongst his people. It's amazing at what happens when God's people come together for worship. You and I can come together for a variety of things, for a variety of events. We can have food and fellowship and camaraderie. We can come to the Super Bowl party and we can cheer on our team, which is the Carolina Panthers. All of the rest of you who are apostate, the invitation is for you. Repent and be saved. But as great and as invigorating as it might be, and the only thing, I have not had the opportunity to go to a Tennessee game yet, but I have been to an LSU game, and the crowd and the noise and the clamor and the excitement and the enthusiasm when you get thousands of people together supporting something. It's amazing at how it can move you. That's what worship should be. As great as a Tennessee game might be, or as great as a Kentucky game might be, as great as a Duke game is always, the greatest moments in this life are not when you're attending something. It's when you're a part of it. That is worship. Being fully engaged in who the triune God is, that is the God that's revealed in the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the one that we sing about, the one that we sing about today, and we sing how great He is, how great you are, we're lifting up the name of the Most High and the Most Holy God who deserves our utmost attention. He deserves our allegiance. He deserves our commitment. And that's really the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is the good news of Jesus as it has been manifested in the person of Christ who came and lived amongst us, as we find out in John chapter 1, who came and lived amongst us and who healed the sick who caused the lame to walk and the blind to see, who lifted up the downtrodden and placed them on a higher hill than they could ever hope for. And for some of us today, that's our story as well, that God has reached in the midst of our circumstances and our life has never, ever been the same. And the truth of the matter is this, when you and I are touched by a holy God, when you and I are touched by the holy God, the creator of this universe, we will never be the same. We will recognize who we are, we will recognize where we are, but more importantly, we will recognize whose we are. And that's our goal for worship, that's our goal for First Baptist Church. It's not that we all speak the same talk, it's not that we all necessarily believe everything exactly like everyone else, but it's that all of us are unified around the one common core issue, and that is the person of Jesus Christ 
To not lift him up is to sin. To not worship him is a crime. To not position him in the center of our lives is to live an apostate life. Because he has done great things for us. He has redeemed us. He has given us the greatest potential. He's gone the cross for us. He has gone the distance. And all he asks, as I began today in Isaiah chapter 55, is for us to come, just to come as we are. Messed up, fouled up, bruised, broken, confused, doubting, hurting, bleeding, dying. And he bids us come and to receive life anew. When Jesus called the disciples, the disciples did not know what they were getting involved in. I mean, let's think about it. Some of them were out fishing and they've been fishing for a while and they caught nothing. And Jesus comes along and says, well, let me come into your boat. Let's push out a little ways and I'll give you your feel. And so they go and he miraculously does this thing where the nets almost burst from the amount of fish that Jesus enabled them to catch. Who wouldn't sign up for that? Who wouldn't sign up to watch someone to be uh, in the inner circle of one who causes blind people to see and lame people to walk? Who would not want to follow someone who mesmerizes crowds, who feeds more than 5,000 counting women and children, and there's 12 baskets of food left over? Who would not want to be a part of that? And as we look in Matthew chapter 20... As mamas look at their sons and as mamas look at their children, mamas take notice of a great charismatic leader in the person of Jesus and they want to make sure that their sons are provided for. And so the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and says, as I've read, kneeling down, asking a favor, and Jesus asks, what do you want? And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Every mom wants their children to be great. There is a desire to be great even if you didn't have a mama. You desire to have, you desire to have more than what you have today. And if I was to uh, ask for a show of hands, many of you would say, you know, I, there are things I want to accomplish in life. And gosh, you know, when it comes to, to Jesus, I, you know, I know enough about the story to know that I want to go to heaven. I want to experience him in eternity. You desire to be great. You desire to be in tune with him and the mother of James and John. She wanted them to be about this kingdom that Jesus was starting. What son doesn't want or what mom doesn't want her son to be a prince? Because that's really what she's asking for. She's asking for Jesus to allow her sons to be in the innermost circle. You don't sit at the king's right hand or left hand unless you and I are royalty. She wants what's best. And so she asked Jesus this favor. Would you allow one of my sons to sit at your right and my other son to sit at your left? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he asked this pivotal question. Can you drink the cup I'm 
going to drink? And the Bible records, we can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. There's a desire, even in this room, for greatness. There's a desire on some people's parts to be great in the eyes of their spouse. There's a desire in other people's part to be great in the eyes of their employer. There's another uh, group of section of people here that they want, uh, they, they tend to spiritualize things a little bit more. Uh, and they would say, I know I want First Baptist to be great. I want us to be a great congregation. And here's, here's the reality for us. We already are great. We already are great, a great congregation. But it's not because why you think. It's not because we showed up. It's not because we brought anything to the table. We're great because the king of this universe, the God that we worship, is in this place. The God that we worship indwells in the lives of us who are committed to following Jesus Christ, who have asked Jesus to come into our hearts to save us from the wrath of our sin, and to give us a hope, to set our hopes higher than we could ever ask or imagine. That's why First Baptist is great. It's great because we serve a great God. Never, ever forget that. But there's a desire to be great. Some want the church to be great. Some want their Sunday school to be great. Some want this community to be a great place to live. It already is a great place to live because we are here, but more importantly than us, God is here in this community and he's doing amazing things in a variety of different churches from new church plants and whatnot. The opportunities are endless. And so we join God in his task. You see, I, I kind of want to let you in on a, on a little something uh, as I've spoken about it before, but I'll let you in on a broader, broader something. We're not in competition with any other church. We never will be. And the reason for that is this. We are but one stream of God's work in this community. And there are many different growing, thriving congregations that come alongside of us. And the greatest vision that God has is for God's churches to come together, see His Son Jesus Christ lifted up, and a community comes under the saving power and knowledge and work of Christ that's when the community gets to be great, when churches put aside their differences and begin celebrating their commonality in the person of Jesus Christ. There is a desire to be great, and this mom in this story wanted her sons basically to be second to God, second to the king. Can we figure the cost of such ambition. What would it take for us to be at the right and left hand of Christ? What would it cost? The two brothers, as well as the other ten disciples, thought that merely by signing up to follow Jesus for his ministry, which only was three years, that they would be considered royalty. In fact, as this gospel continues to evolve in later chapters, 
You see the mistakes and the misunderstandings of the disciples because when Jesus, when he says, you know, the kingdom's about to come, I'm going to be put to death, there was this desire to bring his kingdom in the here and now because they understand what we often understand when it comes to kingdom. And if you ask my daughter, what's a kingdom? She goes, I am the princess and this is my kingdom. She understands the concept of a kingdom that's royalty. And what it means is for her, she gets to wear a beautiful little dress. She gets to have a little magic wand. She gets to imagine a world that's radically different than living on F Street. But it's her kingdom. And For some of us, we bought into the idea too that God's kingdom... Oh, can I just tread the streets of gold? See, I was one of those people when I heard about streets of gold, sign me up for that because I'm going to die, bury a hoe or something in my casket because I want to dig up the street when we get to heaven. That was kind of my understanding of God's kingdom. But Jesus asks the question to the mother of James and John, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And that's where we're going to camp out today. Can you drink the cup that Jesus not is going to drink, but that Jesus drank? The cost of following Jesus is much more than merely being ridiculed for following him. Some of us experience persecution here in our community. For students, you may, if you're in the high school, you may say, I'm a follower of Christ, and you might get picked on every now and then because you choose to be a follower of Jesus, and oh, you just hate that persecution. If you're in the workplace, you might be in an environment that's not very receptive to the gospel, and so you're not very appreciated when it comes to sharing your faith. In fact, you live in fear of sharing your faith, but I want you to understand there's a different time today than there was then, and as bad as martyrdom is today, it can get much, much worse. Much worse. Yes, we have a rogue group of Islamic terrorists in our world that behead Christians. And that's the closest thing we can come this day to what they were experiencing in a New Testament world in the sense of following Jesus. And until Christianity became the official part of the Roman Empire, much, much later... Christians were persecuted as a rogue group that were a threat to the state or to the nationality or to the empire of Rome. We have a long way to go. That's not to deny the fact that it exists, but it can get much worse. Can we drink the cup I'm going to drink or can we drink the cup that Jesus drank? The cost of following Jesus is much more than ridicule. The cost of following Jesus in reality, it will cost you and me our lives. It will cost everything. Because as I've said before, if our following Jesus doesn't cost us anything, then the faith that we embody is worthless. Our fellowship and our commitment of Christ must cost us everything. And as he notes earlier in Matthew, whoever finds his life will lose it. 
And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This morning as we gather in this place, this morning as we sit comfortably in a padded pew, this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the invitation this morning is an invitation to answer the question, can you drink the cup that Jesus drank? Because as we pass out the elements in a few moments, and you take that little plastic cup, don't ever let it lose its nuance and effectiveness for your life spiritually. Can you drink the cup of Christ? Not can you take of this cup, because this one, you know, but what it symbolizes. Can you take the cup of Christ? Allowing Him to be at the center of your thoughts, your actions, your motivations, in the center of His will as you seek to do what He plans for your life, not what you plan for your life, as you make Him the central focus of your ambition, of your finances, of your fellowship, of your family, of your workplace, of your school, of your home life, of every aspect. Do not compartmentalize spirituality. You don't have a work life, a home life, a school life, a church life. You have, you and I have but one life. How are we spending it? Can we take the cup that Jesus has taken? Can we drink the cup that he's taken? And if we examine and we unpack the cup that Jesus has taken, it goes much deeper than a last supper. It goes to the very threshold of the cross. And for many of us, the cross is an ornament that we may hang around our neck or an ornament that we might hang in our home, or an ornament that might be on a bookmark in our Bible. But to put it in proper perspective, it was Christ's electric chair. It was the tool that killed him. Do we live in the shadow of that reality? Recognizing that the cup that he drank from cost him his life. If we look in Philippians chapter 2, it not only cost him his life, it cost him his godliness. He emptied himself and became obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. He emptied himself for your sake and my sake that we might have an everlasting life in him. The cup that he drank was not temporal. The cup that he drank was eternal. And I don't think it's a far cry to say that when he was on the cross and when he took that cup, every soul, every person, he thought of even those who will choose never to believe in Him. That is love. That's the type of love that we must embody as the body of Christ. A love that does not love for what we get out of it, but a love that loves despite who we are. 
That is the love that calls us to reach across an aisle. That is the love that calls us to be reconciled to one another. That is a love that loves not because of what we're getting out of a relationship, but is choosing to love because what we can give to a relationship. And Christ gave everything. He loves and he loved even those who would never trust in him. People that will end up in eternal damnation and in hell, and hell is real. It's real. It's not going to be empty. There will be people there who have never trusted in Christ. You may say, that's not fair. Who are you and I to determine what's fair? Hell is real. There will be eternal torment for those who have never trusted in Christ. And here's the reality. This is how much I know about God's love. This is the love that I believe, the doctrine of his love, if you want to call it that. It's that he loves even those who will be eternally separated from him. Even those who are defiantly opposed to his work, his mission, his call, his love has no end. He loves all people. And his love ultimately wins. But the key component is, can we drink the cup that he drank from? Can we embody what he has done? Can we live our lives, empty our lives of everything that we've built our lives to be about and build it upon his purpose, his will, and his calling. Every single one of us in this room has a calling by God. He's speaking to us every day. He's calling us every day. Are we drinking his cup? This is the invitation. And so as the deacons come forward to pass out the bread... And then to pass out the cup, particularly when you take the bread and the cup today, I want you to really, really think about the cost and ask yourself this question. Am I where I need to be? Am I where I need to be as I hold this cup and as I hold this piece of bread, as I hold this symbol of the body of Christ and this symbol of the blood of Christ, Am I ready to receive the cup that's put before me? And if you sit here as the deacons pass it out and you say, I'm not ready. Well, now's the time to get ready. In the time that they pass it out, you spend time. You spend time praying to God. You spend time being real and honest with the Father. And you tell him, Lord, I have not felt worthy to take this cup because of this or this or this. But today I recognize that I am worthy not because of what I do. I am worthy because of what you have done through Jesus Christ. And I want that in my life, purposed in my will and your will to worship you. So that when we take the bread and the cup together, we can do it unified in body and spirit. And we can say, I'm committed to Jesus. I'm committed to Christ I'm committed to his body, which is the church. And I'm committed to following him, loving this community, loving as he has loved.
Let us pray together.